This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. For $75 off your first order, visit Molecule, that's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com, and enter the promo code FOOL75. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, November 19th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's show, we're going to talk about Berkshire's 13F, their latest buys. This quarter shows a big fondness for banks, apparently, but Matt will get into that for us. And we'll recap the war on cash for this most recent earnings season, talk about the good, the bad, and What's to come? We'll tap into Twitter, of course, and as always, give you one to watch. But we begin this week with another installment of Between Two Fools. Matty Argersinger has been investing here at The Motley Fool now for over 10 years and has established quite the track record along the way. This week on Between Two Fools, Matty and I caught up on the subject of real estate, why it should matter to foolish investors, and how he and his team are getting ready to help you become smarter, happier, and richer. Hey Matt, tell us. Uh, so why why should investor focused listeners be interested in real estate? That's a great question. Well, it's the real estate is the third largest asset class behind bonds and stocks. So it's a massive market. In fact, if you look at Zillow's number of the value of U.S. residential real estate, it's about thirty two trillion, which is actually bigger than the size, the market capitalization of the U.S. stock market. Wow. So the value of the US housing market is bigger than the stock market. Uh, there's that. And there's the, um, I was looking at something the other day, a, a prediction for 2019 that there's going to be $600 billion thereabouts in rental and leasing revenue Holy cow. for real estate. That is about half the revenue of the SP 500. So just to give you some idea about the size of the real estate market. But the reason I think, Investors should really look at the asset class. One, it's something we haven't looked at a lot at the Molly Fool. We're yeah. obviously very stock focused. We've been taught for years, decades, and most of us still fully believe this. And I really believe this up until just recently that stocks really deliver historically the best returns. It's really the best returns you can get as an individual investor. Well, that that's been turned on its head a little bit. There was a study that came out in 2017 by the National Bureau of Economic Research that for the first time really went back and looked at the returns of all these asset classes from, I think, roughly 16 developed countries, including the United States. And they actually concluded that real estate, believe it or not, offered a slightly better return than stocks. And this data went back to 1870. It's about 150-odd years of data that stocks or real estate actually outperformed stocks a little bit. And as you might expect, real estate had about half the volatility, less than half the volatility, of the stock market. All right, but we can at least agree that stocks are more liquid, right? <laughs> yes. First, yeah, no doubt about that one. No doubt about that. Stocks I, I still like, have that. I like that point though because I think for in, in our lifetime, you know, our context is very much real estate more or less the rule of thumb it just tracks inflation, right? I mean, if you look at it, the chart pretty much tells you with the exception of that anomaly back in in like 2001 through 2005, generally speaking it tracks it tracks inflation um but it sounds like if you if you have a bit of a longer timeline in mind, there could certainly be some rewards now. There now, speaking of rewards, because that's ultimately why we invest. And Matt, you, you we work with each other every day. I mean, we talk about real estate stocks, all this stuff. You know, 
I moved up here from Georgia. I kept my house down there for like seven years after we rented it out. That's I was right. a landlord. I mean, it was it was a scary time. I was just <laughs> waiting to get sued every day. Um, now, with that said, you know, we sold our house down there. We sold our house up here. We recognized some nice gains that allowed us to move into a bigger home, and and so it goes. Um, but if we're talking about our listeners, investors. What are some of the ways they can invest in real estate? Do they have to be landlords, or are there other ways to go about this? Well, yeah, you can certainly go the landlord route. You and I have done it. You just mentioned it. Um, I also still own some income properties in here in Washington D.C., and I know all about being a landlord. And sometimes it is not fun. Uh, but no, there, the nice thing is there are so many ways to invest in real estate. One way I'm sure we're all familiar with is you can do it through the stock market. You can do it through REITs, real estate investment trusts. They've yep. been around for over 50 years. Very liquid, basically. Mutual funds of real estate, you can go in and invest. You, know, you can find a, a hotel REIT that owns hundreds of hotel properties. You can find an office REIT that owns nothing but office buildings. There's many ways to do it. And you can also, there's also traditional equities that are really real estate focused. Uh, for example, Vail Resorts, a company that you oh, and I yeah, follow, yeah, ticker yeah. MTN, you know, that's pretty much a real estate business. They own Obviously, hospitality properties and some of the greatest ski mountains in the world. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful company. But really exciting is that nowadays, and thanks, this is all thanks really to the rise of crowdfunding. Nowadays, even individual investors can really tap into the private commercial real estate market, which for a long time, for many decades, was kind of this thing off on the you know periphery where you couldn't really get in unless you were wealthy or you had a rich uncle or your you know membership at your golf local <laughs> golf club where you know you'd rub shoulders with investors. But it's really accessible now. And so if you're an investor who's thinking about, I don't know, investing in a hotel in Nashville, Tennessee or an office building in Chicago or an apartment building in San Francisco, just to use weird examples, you can actually do that through crowdfunding nowadays. And so it's really accessible. You don't even need that much money. In some cases, you can put up just as little as $10,000 and invest directly in commercial real estate. Yeah, I, I mean, just speaking as a homeowner, and I mean, that's about the extent of our, our real estate exposure thus far. It, it, I, I, it is amazing the doors that it can open. I mean, there is a lot to be said for it. Now, with that in mind, I mean, we talk about stocks all the time in the stock market. We look at Periods where we feel like the market is overvalued or undervalued, these stocks are buys, these stocks are sells. I mean, my point is, we look at a lot of metrics to try to gauge where we should be right. uh, involved in the market here. When it comes to real estate, it feels like it can be a little bit trickier. Certainly, real estate, just from the the personal perspective, I mean, you hear it's location, location, location. Just it's different everywhere you go. But as an investor, what are some of the key metrics and and furthermore, some of the risks? That that you are looking for when you're considering investing in real estate. Sure. Well, the nice thing is, you can apply a lot to what you've learned in the stock market to real estate. I mean, we're all looking for, you know, good balance sheets, good management teams, uh, reasonable profit margins, and those met- those same metrics exist in the real estate market. They might have different names. For example, in the real estate market, you'll often hear a term called net operating income. Well, we yep. use that in stocks too, but net operating income really means you know. Essentially, your rental revenue minus all your operating expenses to manage the property, um, and that gives you your net operating income. And that's kind of a very fundamental view of the income of a property. Uh, A term you'll often hear is also cap rate, capitalization rate, and that is essentially the net operating income divided by the value of the property. Um, Generally, when buying a property, you're aiming to pay a high cap rate. You're looking for a property that kicks off a lot of income. 
you know, based on your relative to your purchase price. When you're looking to sell, you're looking to for a lower cap rate because you want to sell at a high value relative to your net operating income. So there's those things. There's uh, the debt structure. Obviously, is really important when it comes to looking at uh, real estate. Um, the track record. You know, we talk about track record all the time with CEOs. You want to know that with your real estate developer too. What kind of track record do they have when it comes to REITs? I think something you can look at is simply the track record of the stock. How has this REIT performed while this management team has been in place? Well, that's also when you're looking at crowdfunded properties, you can dive in and figure out, you know, what, how is the sponsor? That's what developers are called in the crowdfunding world. But how is the sponsor done with previous listings, previous crowdfunded deals? You can you can find that information. So, again, balance sheet, income, management, it all applies just different ways. In the real estate market, yeah, and I'd imagine. I mean, understanding a little bit more. I mean, if you're going to go into a diverse play that has like real estate holdings in a lot of different places, I mean, understanding the economies in those places totally could make a could make a, a big difference. Well, you said it. I mean, you said location, location, yeah. location, and that's so key. I mean, if you're if you're focusing on single asset properties, like a single hotel somewhere, a single office building, single apartment building. Obviously, the local demographics make a huge difference. Is it a place where there are a lot of customers or potential renters moving to or living? You know, if you're an office building, it, do you have access to good talent or to your customers? All of that is kind of special sauce when it comes to real estate. It reminds me of a statistic I read um, the other week, and you, you look at a lot of these companies that we follow, and CVS is one that uh, just an interesting business from a number of different perspectives. But I read something where they said that they have they have a store within five miles of 75% of the entire U.S. population. Mm. So, I don't think that was an accident. Clearly, they Not have people who have been thinking a little bit forward in that regard. Um, another company that we cover here, I cover certainly, is uh, HCA. And I know there are some strong opinions out there regarding corporate medicine, but the fact of the matter is that HCA is a pretty strong business. Oh yeah, do a lot of a lot of good work with this big base of hospitals that they have. So those are a couple of real estate uh, ideas that I've I've always uh, paid attention to. And I guess really my point was you can think of it a number of different ways. It's not like you're just buying and selling houses. But when we talk about buying and selling houses or buying and investing in stocks, whatever it may be, I'm excited for you because we have. Something new coming down the pike here soon in regard to the Motley Fool and services that we're offering our members. I'm excited because number one, I know I'm going to learn a lot more, but also number two, I don't think we could have put the more appropriate person in the place oh. for it. Tell me a little bit <laughs> about what we have in store for our listeners, for our members, for people around the world. We're going to do to make them smarter, happier, richer. What? Tell me. Oh well, thanks, Jason. Yeah, it's really exciting. Hopefully, we're hoping for by February, maybe March. But if everything works right, maybe February, that we're going to launch our first real estate product here at the Motley Fool, and we're going to do something really different, which is exciting. It's um, you'd think we're okay. The Motley Fool is launching a real estate product. It's going to what is it going to be recommending REITs or equities? Well, yes, we're going to be recommending those, but we're also going to be for the first time enabling members who join the service to invest directly in commercial real estate, like I was talking about earlier. Uh-huh. And so we're going to be featuring deals from around the country. Uh, deals that enable members to own minority interests in commercial real estate developments wow. or assets. Um, think you know, think apartment complexes in in Dallas, Texas. Or uh, one deal I was looking at the other day is a new resort that's going up in Stowe, Vermont, the great ski resort uh, up yes. there. And so 
these are real deals in the marketplace, and we're looking to enable members to to buy uh, interest in them. We're going to be recommending them, and then of course talking about some of the risks, um, providing a lot of additional resources to help members understand the real estate market, the the nuances of it, the different asset classes within it. And how we think you can earn a great return. So, a little birdie told me as well that you may be working with someone on this uh, service that individual or members uh, may may be uh, yeah. familiar with. Huh? Yes, yes. Well, yeah. I think your partner in crime, Matt Frankel, <laughs> yeah. on this podcast. Um, he's written a lot of. He's focused on real estate really extensively for Full.com. I, I was just reading a few weeks ago um, a great kind of primer on REITs that he wrote for Full.com uh, list of viewers recently, which, which was fantastic. So he's going to be joining us on the service um, and contributing content on REITs and recommendations on REITs, uh, and we're really excited to have him. All right. Well, I'm going to give you one last chance. Anything else you can tell us about the forthcoming product? No, no. I, I'll just say we haven't named it yet. Uh-huh. Um, and so, the is there a listener contest? Perhaps <laughs> at the maybe we are looking for names, but we we got a few ideas. But you know, just you know, kind of pay attention, listen to our podcast for the next few weeks and months. Uh, we'll be sharing more about it. But couldn't be more excited about about starting kind of a new vertical here at the Fool, something uh, a new asset class we haven't really explored yet. Sounds cool. Well, good luck and thanks for coming on this. Thanks, week. Jason. And as always, joining me in the studio this week via Skype is certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how was your weekend? Pretty good. My football team won, but it wasn't a very big game. But I took my daughter to our first basketball game last night, so that was a lot of fun. Oh, very nice. Our, bas- our women's basketball team's excellent. Beautiful. I took her to a Gamecocks basketball game. I did. Oh, terrific, man. How was that? It was great. Like I said, our women's team's one of the best in the country. We we lost last night, but it was a big game. Well, that's, um, and it was a lot of. She loved it. That is the most fun in the world. Is as, as a parent is doing all of that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, enjoy it because it goes by very very quickly, and you hit a point sooner or later where they're kind of trying to figure out not to be a not how how not to be around you so much. So uh, enjoy it while you got it. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, before we get going today, I do want to take just a moment here. Uh, I want to say thanks to the good folks at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina, for having me last week. Uh, listeners may remember I mentioned I was going down there to speak with some students and professors just about investing, about the fool, and, and all sorts of good stuff. Uh, Calhoun Kennedy in the Office of Advancement, Professors Philip Swicegood and Andrew Green uh, were, were gracious hosts, and just I had a wonderful time there. They are really doing some cool stuff down there, particularly with their student-run James Fund. And I am really looking forward, actually, to having Dr. Swicegood on the show here soon for Between Two Fools, so he can shine a light on some of the great things they're doing down there with the James Fund. And uh, you know, for me, it was just a real treat to get back there. I hope to get back down there real soon. I just uh, wanted to extend my appreciation to to everyone down there in Spartanburg again. Uh, Matt, okay, big news here, as uh, is with every quarter. Berkshire Hathaway's 13F came out. That's the SEC form that gives us an idea of what they are buying, what they're selling. You wrote an article here recently on Fool.com that gave us some great insight there. Talk to me a little bit about Berkshire's 13F and what stood out to you. Well, we knew this was a fairly active quarter for Berkshire. In its earnings report, we saw that it spent something like $14 billion on stocks. But there were a few things that really stood out. Um, One, Berkshire invested in Oracle, which was a new position and kind of shows how Berkshire's embracing technology recently. And embracing his own brand, too, right? I mean, he's the Oracle of Omaha. You may as well own some Oracle, (laughs) huh? (laughs) I wonder if that had anything to do with it. (laughs) 
the other big thing that stood out was bank stocks. Um, not just that Berkshire bought one bank, they initiated a $4 billion position in JP Morgan. Wow. But that Berkshire upped its position in pretty much every major bank stock it owns, with the exception of Wells Fargo. Um, it bought over, almost 200 million more shares of Bank of America, uh, 25, 24 million shares of US Bank, um, another 5 million shares of Goldman, um, which was its biggest percentage increase for the quarter. It increased its Goldman stake by 38%. Uh, Bank of New York Mellon. Um, and Berkshire, just there's a couple of things to kind of take from this. Number one, Berkshire can't own any more than 10% of a bank, which is why he's kind of branching out into new big bank positions like J.P. Morgan and selling a little of his Wells Fargo every quarter. Um, he needs to maintain that stake a little under 10%, which it is. Bank of America now is very close to being a 10% stake. Um, Goldman's not quite there yet, but some of his smaller ones are. Um, and J.P. Morgan's one that he could you know, buy another $20 billion worth and not be close to the cap yet. So in my opinion, that's why he decided to buy J.P. Morgan. It's a great run, a very well-run bank, and he has a lot of room to expand his position, and Berkshire really needs to spend billions of dollars to move the needle. Um, but just kind of the general theme of buying bank stocks, in all, we don't know the exact price Buffett paid for all these, but he spent close to $15 billion on bank stocks during the quarter. And that's an already, he already had an overweight position in banks. So- why is Buffett buying so many banks? Well, one, it's been a big underperformer of the S&P. Banks were a huge beneficiary of tax reform. A lot of the banks that we, when we've discussed their earnings, have earnings up, you know, 40, 45% year over year. And the main reason for that is tax reform. Banks pay pretty much the maximum corporate tax rate. Um, and banks have yet to really realize the benefit of the raise, the rising rate environment. We mentioned that um, you know banks, their profit margins go up as interest rates go up, which tends to happen. But so far, the Fed's raised rates about eight times, and we're yet to see really the, that kind of rate movement on the long end of the yield curve, meaning like on mortgage rates and things like that. So banks are yet to realize the profit potential from that. It's still generally a deregulated banking environment, a business-friendly banking environment, if you will. Even though the Democrats took back the House, we're not likely to see any significant new banking regulations come to be with a Republican in the White House and a Republican-controlled Senate. So a pretty neutral regulatory environment. And it should just be a very nice climate for growth, given how well the economy is doing. Uh, most banks are posting very good loan and deposit growth, um, great numbers when it comes to like defaults and charge-offs, asset quality is looking really good. So it's just a really great growth environment for banks. And the market really isn't, hasn't really given banks the credit for it to be a great growth environment. So it looks like Buffett just kind of sees some un, unlocked and unrealized value in this sector. And um, that's what he's betting his money on. Well, and it makes sense. I mean, we have an economy that is obviously very credit driven. I and mean, when that is the case, I mean, these are the big banks that are really out there helping a lot of that money move around in one way, shape, or form. And and I mean, to your point about JP Morgan Chase, I mean, we are big fans of that company, obviously, one of the bigger uh, banks out there doing. Um, more and more with with the capital it's able to gather, and I think Jamie Dimon has proven to be really a very forward thinking CEO. And not only that, but but 
Buffett and Diamond, along with Bezos, working together on that um, healthcare initiative to try to uh, help cut costs and improve healthcare within their own companies, and hopefully bring some of those learnings out to the greater uh, to the greater corporate society. So, I mean, I think that's that that all makes sense. I mean, I, I did want to follow up with you on one thing here. So, with the Wells Fargo position, because we've been obviously very critical of Wells Fargo for some time here now. But the cutting of the Wells Fargo position there, you think that really is more related to not hitting that 10% mark as opposed to throwing down the gauntlet and saying, you know what, we're sick and tired of your culture problems there and fix it or we're going to start weaning our uh, our way off of, of your position in our portfolio. Right. That's a very good question. Um, first, a couple of points. First of all, Buffett came out about a year ago and said, we have no intention of getting rid of Wells Fargo. We are going to start selling to keep our stake under 10%. Uh, Berkshire's stake is a little over 9%, and Buffett also owns some Wells Fargo in his personal portfolio. So combined, he has to be very careful that it doesn't give him 10% control. Second, Wells Fargo, because it has been a big underperformer, is buying back its stock very aggressively, which is making Buffett's stake naturally go up over time. So each quarter for the past few quarters, Buffett's had to sell a small percentage. I think it was a little under 2% of the Wells Fargo stake he sold this quarter, but a small percentage each quarter. And each time it happens, a few weeks later, Buffett has come out and said, "This we, we believe in Wells Fargo. They made a mistake. Um, last, time he, last quarter, he actually said he believes Wells Fargo will be the best performing of the big four over the next 10 years. So he's come out in support of Wells Fargo many times as a long-term investment, has said he has no intention of getting rid of it from the portfolio. And we've seen this consistent pattern of selling to kind of maintain the stake at a certain level over the past you know three or four quarters now. Well, all right. We will wait until next quarter to see what the trends uh, trends continue to look like there. And folks, you know, it's been a pretty big sell-off today. Probably uh, you got to catch your breath Understandable. It's good as time as any to remind you that this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Molecule, the world's first molecular air purifier that reduces symptoms for allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Molecule makes a real difference for asthma and allergy sufferers, helping them better cope with their conditions and significantly reducing their symptoms. In fact, one customer reportedly said that after using Molecule in her home, that she was able to breathe through her nose for the first time in 15 years. Molecule is easy to use and has a clean and sleek design. From the materials used on the device, like its sleek, solid aluminum shell, to a filter subscription service where filters regularly arrive on your doorstep when you need them. Our own Jim Mueller is a very happy user. Chris Hill may or may not have stolen one from the studio here at one point. And, hey, listen, I don't suffer from allergies, but with three dogs in the house, Matt, I can't help but think that maybe I would benefit from a molecule as well. So for $75 off your first order, visit M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com and enter the promo code FOOL75. All right, Matt, it's that time of the quarter. Uh, earnings season is wrapping up here, and uh, listeners know that we talk a lot about the payment space 
the war on cash basket that we we've enjoyed covering here, and that is uh, PayPal and Square and Visa and Mastercard. So uh, we wanted to go ahead and give our quarterly review with the war on cash basket, see where these companies stand after this most recent earnings season, and to give listeners a quick update on this. Uh, basket and where it stands uh, from a returns perspective since the date of inception, which is July 24, 2017. The war on cash basket is up 65.2% versus the market's 9.1%. And those numbers are good as of about one o'clock. Monday afternoon here on November nineteenth. Wanted to make sure to get those as updated as possible, Matt, because there's a lot of blood on the streets out there today in the market, and some of these names, uh, it looks like they might be going on sale, huh? Yeah, pretty much anything involving tech <laughs> has been getting hammered. Um, not happy as about it from watching my portfolio every day, but hopefully we'll be able to shut up about these one of these days, and we can all buy a few more and. Take advantage. Well, that's a nice part about the holiday season. We have a couple of days off here and there, so we can just uh, be <laughs> quiet, right? <laughs> well, let's just uh, kick it off here with PayPal real quick, just to give you an idea of what was going on with PayPal for the quarter. Total payment volume was up 24% to $143 billion. Uh, transactions, which is engagement, that grew uh, 9.5% on a trailing 12-month basis. And another encouraging uh, metric here, mobile payment volume of $57 billion was up 45% for the quarter. So, all in all, PayPal doing a lot of what we just continue to see it do quarter in and quarter out. And I think really what I want to keep an eye on, at least, is with Venmo. And while Venmo is bringing in good numbers, right? The results are there. $17 billion flowed through that Venmo network for the quarter, and 24% of users are now participating in monetizable action. Uh, but it's also worth noting that this quarter didn't reflect the Price increase that users of Venmo are going to start feeling here in the coming uh, quarters uh, in regard to the instant funding aspect of, of the uh, the network there. So I, I just think Venmo is as encouraged as I am by that part of the business. It's also worth noting that PayPal on its own is doing quite well. Let's keep Venmo on our radar. Make sure that they're not rushing to monetization here. You don't want to scare those users away. Uh, but all in all, I felt like it was an encouraging quarter for PayPal. Uh, Matt. Tell us real quick, what were your takeaways for uh, Square's most recent quarter? Um, Square doing great um, on, on just by the numbers, looking at uh, adjusted revenue up over 60% year over year. Subscription revenue, if you back out acquisitions, almost doubled. And that's without the impact of acquisitions. Um, the thing that stood out to me most is that their margins continue to expand um, year over year. Just kind of looking at the numbers, uh, the, the adjusted margin is 16% this past quarter compared to 13% a year ago. And in their core payment processing business, the profit margin on those transactions has gone up to 1.07% from 1.05%. And two basis points may not sound like a lot of margin, but it is when you're talking about you know pennies per transaction, like a 1% margin. So Square is doing great. The, squ- the stock has been absolutely hammered lately. They're down 35% since just the end of the quarter. Um, and it's all because of things that are likely to be very temporary headwinds, have nothing to do with the growth story. Um, the CFO, Sarah Fryer, left. They just announced she's leaving earlier than planned. She actually left last Friday. Um, Jack Dorsey sold some stock. The market's not that happy that Square's getting into the personal credit business. But this is a company with tremendous potential for growth, and they're achieving that potential. The growth has been has been sustained for a long time now, even accelerating in many ways. So, 
I've made uh, Warren Buffett made his bold prediction about Wells Fargo. My bold prediction is that within in a decade from now, Square is going to be the most valuable of all four war on cash basket stocks. That is a bold statement. I like it. So, I like it. Uh, well, it's time to be bold. Hey, here. listen. I mean, you know, Square. That's by far and away the higher uh, risk. Holding of the four in the war on cash, and really that was the point behind the war on cash uh, basket. There was to have a little bit of uh, uh, exposure to to all all areas of risk. There, so Square giving you the higher risk. We talk about our market leaders in that basket. Visa certainly one of them. I mean, not much to say here. It's relatively status quo for the largest card company out there. And everybody, I think, has a Visa card in their wallet at this point. Um, payments continue to grow nicely. The company is immensely profitable. I think the only real criticism that I have with with Visa was just in regard to the the dividend. I mean, they raised their dividend recently, but it was a very very modest amount. Um, where I feel like Visa and Mastercard could probably do a little bit better on that cash in the pocket uh, for shareholders. They continue to repurchase shares. Share counts down more than twelve percent since two thousand and thirteen. Uh, but but you know you look at the company's payout ratio, and I think these numbers are, are fairly uh, memorable here. Their payout their payout ratio is is around nineteen percent since two thousand and thirteen. It hasn't exceeded twenty three point six percent, and that's all to say that they can absolutely afford that dividend, and they can afford to grow that dividend. Um, so again, nothing nothing really. Terribly surprising with the quarter. It was a good quarter. I just, frankly, would love to see him raise that dividend a little bit more for shareholders. But maybe, uh, maybe that will happen in time. What was your takeaway with Mastercard? Yeah, I could kind of say the same thing. Neither Visa or Mastercard is a high dividend stock. Um, Feels like they should be, like, though, right? They should be. I, I think they will be once the the war on cash is in the. You know, right now we're in like the second or third inning of the war on cash. Once we're in the seventh or eighth inning, I think we're going to see. Then become actual high dividend stocks. There we go. Um, I like I like that they're buying back shares. Uh, Mastercard spent over a billion dollars on repurchases in the third quarter alone, and bought a bunch more in the first first little bit of October to take advantage of the weakness. So I'm a fan. I'm definitely a fan of when companies take advantage of of price drops by using buybacks. So I have mixed feelings about it. I would love to see them pay a little bit more of a dividend, but at the same time, I understand. One, the importance of investing cash back into the business, and two, of buying stock, especially when the market's volatile like this. So just like Visa, MasterCard's business looks great. Um, everything's growing at pretty much a double-digit rate. Um, revenue's growing faster than expenses, which is really nice to see. Um, and international revenue is really taking off. Cross-border transactions up 17% year over year. So these companies are growing. So there's definitely an argument to be made that the money they're investing back into their business and not paying out as dividends is being well spent. So I, like I said, I have mixed feelings. I think eventually within within the next five years or so, I think you're going to see them really prioritize dividend increases as they they grow into the new cashless society. Well, that's a very Buffett-esque quality, right? They feel like they can do more with that money right now as opposed to paying it on the form of dividends. So. I mean, from that perspective, I agree with you. I think that makes a lot of sense, and at least that's encouraging. That's a glass half full way to look at it, man. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's tough to argue with that logic when you're they're producing you know double digit growth rates. Yeah, listen, I'm a happy shareholder either way. Don't 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 misunderstand me. All right, guys, let's tap into Twitter real quick just to take a look at what's going on throughout the week. A little bit of a quiet week, but at uh, Cam Kane three wanted to chime in and just say. 
I really enjoyed hearing about the Square earnings, and Cam, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. Thank you for saying that. We'll keep on doing what we can to keep you uh, listening. So, if you ever have any questions or if if you know if we're not covering companies that you guys want us to cover, hey, just just give us a shout. And let us know. And at Jamon and Reason, uh, in in response to the story we talked about last week, Matt, uh, in regard to millennials lacking the confidence to invest. Um, and in, in, in response to a statement I had made earlier about uh, millennials and it not necessarily being their fault that they had not learned about some of that stuff, and, and Jamin replies, he says, I disagree that it's not their fault. Every individual must take it upon themselves to get educated or suffer the consequences of ignorance. And, you know, actually, I, I do agree with this to an, to an extent, and I want to make sure I'm very clear here. I, I don't mean that if you're an adult or even an adolescent uh, that that you should just consider yourself ignorant if you have not learned about financial literacy at that point. But but clearly, as a country, we have not done a good job in educating uh, our kids as they go through school in regard to financial literacy and whatnot. And really, that's where I'm, I'm, that's where I'm going, is we need to at least give everyone the base knowledge. And it's one thing for adults to make bad decisions, even if they have the education. If you've got that base of knowledge and you still make bad decisions, that's on you. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of people just don't have that knowledge yet because we're not doing a very good job uh, in, in in our schools around the country teaching a lot of these kids. And if, if you're not learning it, you're not born with that knowledge. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a tough cycle to break. So I appreciate you, Jamie, getting in there. Did you uh, have anything you wanted to offer there, Matt? Yeah, I think it's, it's a matter of making the education readily available. Yeah. I definitely am a fan of personal responsibility as a teacher myself. I taught high school for years. I it's it's sad to see, you know, the, the educational opportunities going to waste. But if you're not offering the opportunities in a readily accessible format, like teaching in a high school course or, you know, um, a lot of colleges have like a university 101 class that would be a great place to put some personal finance in. If we're not making it readily available, then you really can't blame the public for ignorance when you know so many other countries are doing a much better job than we are of make, of educating their population on personal finance matters. Yep, if you don't know, you don't know. You got to start somewhere. Okay, so let's go ahead and wrap this up with our one to watch this week, Matt. And Matt, you have, I think, an interesting take for listeners based on what we've been talking about today. What is your one to watch this week? Well, I'm a big fan of Buffett's banking investments. I've been talking about the value in banks like Bank of America and Goldman Sachs for some time now. Um, other people on the show have talked about JP Morgan as a big, big value play, Wells Fargo. But it's not practical for most people to own 10 different bank stocks. So I'm I'm watching actually the financial sector spider ETF. Uh, ticker symbol is XLF. And it's a great way to invest in a bunch of bank stocks and Berkshire itself. Don't forget Berkshire at its core is a financial sector stock and is actually the ETF's highest top holding. Um, but other than that, it owns a lot of JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Pretty much the Buffett banking portfolio, you could buy all in one stock. Good deal. And it's a very it's a very low-cost index fund. It's a great way if people just feel like I do, that the banking sector as a whole has a lot of potential and is very undervalued right now. And what's the ticker for that fund? 
It again is XLF. I like that. That's good. Well, um, kind of like you, I'm gonna I'm gonna honor Buffett and Berkshire here. I'm gonna go with Travelers uh, in honor of of uh, Berkshire bringing or adding at least to Travelers uh, during the quarter. Uh, the ticker is TRV. Um, you know, insurance is just one of those things. Everybody needs it. You don't know when it's going to come in handy, but that's the whole point, really. And Travelers is a very well-known brand within the insurance industry. Uh, net premiums for the most recent quarter were up six percent, which is encouraging. They continue to maintain attractive, uh, maintain attractive combined ratios. Uh, the underlying combined ratio this year chalked up at ninety-three percent. That means they're writing good business. And and I think that you can you can assume that they will continue to do that. The philosophy I think uh, with travelers certainly when I was there, and, and this doesn't appear to have changed, is they want to just pay what they owe and and move on. Uh, try to eliminate as much of that friction, eliminate those frictional costs that uh, can string out business for a long period of time in the form of subrogation and whatnot. Um, and then I think it's also really neat to see travelers uh, saddling up with Amazon here and, and coming up with some new home uh, insurance products using some of that technology that Amazon's coming out with, rolling that into some travelers insurance products and giving homeowners a new uh, way to view uh Purchasing home insurance, which which is of course a requirement if you're going to own your home. Uh, so for me, yeah, travelers. It seems like it's never really been a bad time to own the stock, and apparently Uncle Warren agrees. Just a reminder for everybody: you can always send us your emails. We love it when you send us your emails. You can send us your emails at industryfocus@fool.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mf industry focus and ask your questions there. We'll do our best to bring him into the show, and if we can't bring it to the show, well, we'll we'll respond. Don't you worry, we're good like that. But as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan for Matt Frankel and Maddie Argersinger. I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll see you next week.